Today, I'm honored to have Riley Kinworthy on the show. Riley is an absolute boss, and she's actually the creator of Rebel Boss. And she and her husband also have uh, multiple business franchises in the workout industry. So tune in, listen to her great tips and ideas in regards to setting goals and accomplishing what you set out to. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. Today, I am very honored to have Riley Kinworthy with us, and she has a fascinating story. So just to kind of talk a little bit about it, uh, you know, she was introduced to entrepreneurship at a young age, but then decided maybe I'll check out a job. And inevitably, she still came back around to entrepreneurship. Uh, something that stuck out to me, and she has a lot of mantras, which helps her in her career now, but one of them that she uh, uses uh, was impactful to me, and it was, your challenges either define you, diminish you, or develop you. And uh, I thought that was super intriguing. So I'm excited to hear about how that's impacted your life. So thanks for being on, Riley. Thank you so much for having me, Phil. Absolutely. Well, for anyone that hasn't listened before, the premise of the podcast is who knew in the moment, right? So that idea that in these moments, we don't know exactly the magnitude that they're going to have. But inevitably, uh, as we look back in hindsight, we can see the trajectory that's put us on. And so um, today with Riley's story, you're going to see a lot of these pivotal moments and how they've gotten her to where she's at today. So Riley, talking a little bit about growing up in Texas, uh, you know, parents had their own business and they they integrated you into the business pretty nicely. So talk a little bit about that being around entrepreneurship early on. Yeah. So my parents were both chiropractors. They actually met in chiropractic college and they opened up their own practice in Texas together. And so from an early age, I mean, maybe it's just that we were free labor, (laughs) (laughs) but they brought us into the practice earlier, at least me more. So my brother didn't take as much interest into it. So, um, you know, every Saturday I'd be in the office, uh, getting patients set up. My mother developed this really great system where she had these clips and so different colored clips to say which room she goes into next. Because as a doctor, you're just going from one room to the next and you grab your clipboard on the way in. So the clip was like, this is who's on deck and this is who's in the hole. So I was kind of the traffic controller, which I loved. (laughs) So really learning the different systems to make a small business run at a very early age, I'd say was, was very impactful. Absolutely. Well, that, that's oftentimes one of the hardest things, right? I mean, when you're starting your own business, you don't have a, this department or that department. You, you are every department. It just depends on what time of day, right? Absolutely. So secondly, then you talked a little bit about um, you, you were in bartending. And I mean, let's be honest, that's, that can be a tough job, right? I mean, you got a lot of people and people want what they want when they want it. So talk a little bit about lessons learned there, just being around people and having to deal and take care of people. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. You definitely see like all of humanity when you're bartending <laughs> and at all of their various states of inebriation. So it's very colorful. Um, I started bartending really early and I'd say maybe it was even illegal. <laughs> I think I was like 16 when I went into my first bar job. I'm pretty sure it was illegal. Um, But I learned a lot about how to deal with people, uh, how to start setting some boundaries, because obviously, you know how that goes as a a female in that that space. Um, And I also learned a lot about sales, actually, because I realized that my value was not only being able to, you know, sling drinks quickly, (laughs) so you get very, very efficient but also how to upsell and kind of create that experience that keeps people wanting to hang out and maybe upgrade to that magnum bottle or something to that effect. So you learn all these little ancillary skills in those moments um, 
and it's just a good time. So yeah, that was just kind of what I did to, to have some pocket money in college and apparently high school. Yeah. <laughs> and high school. Yeah. <laughs> so talk a little bit about that because I think that's an interesting point, right? Um, you know, it, it is a skill to be able to say, Oh, are you sure you don't want to double or, you know, Oh, you, you do want to have a second or a third drink, right? I mean, whatever it is. Uh, but talk about how that parlays into business, you know, in, a full-time career in your actual business now? I think the two big lessons are how do you create an environment where people want to connect with you um, and spend their time with you, right? Because when you are curating an experience, whether that's in business coaching, whether that's at a bar or in any capacity, you're curating an experience for somebody. So how do you make it in a way that is going to be, you know, delightful for them and engaging for them, um, which is a lot of listening, uh, connecting, asking the right questions and, you know, having people want to spend their time with you. So, so in that space, you know, you, you create the longevity of the relationship and then what to sell and how to sell it is also just an exercise in listening. So if you yeah, know yeah. what the people are, the, the experience they're looking to have tonight, they've got friends coming, whatever it is, you can cater the pitch based on their needs, but you have to be uh, astute to what people are needing. Yeah, well, I think that's so phenomenal because a lot of people are maybe looking for the same thing, but they want it packaged differently, Right. And it's your job to interpret what you're hearing they want, right? And then making sure that you're delivering that experience. Yes, absolutely. That's good. Okay. So after, you know, this, you know, arguably questionable high school hiring of a bartender, uh, we'll, we'll, we won't name what bar it is or anything. No, uh, you decide, hey, it's time to head off to college. And so being in Texas, you know, I mean, there's more than enough schools in Texas, but why the heck would we want to stay there? So talk a little bit about that decision process and where you end up going. Yeah, that was absolutely a pivotal moment in my life. So in Texas, there's actually this really great rule where if you're in the top 10% of your class, you get automatic admission into any college that is a state funded school. No so, kidding. Yeah. And wow. so I was number, I think, uh, 16 in, in my class of 653 or something. So I qualified, yeah. but um, I just, I didn't want to stay in Texas and there's nothing wrong with Texas. It's great. People are amazing there, but um you know, I just wanted a new adventure. I wanted something absolutely different. It was a small town. It was very like a Friday night lights town, you know, yeah, yeah. everybody was kind of cookie cutter and kind of the same. You just, you just knew everyone and you kind of knew what to expect. So I chose to go to Boston. Um, I, I knew I wanted to go to the East coast, just probably for the, for the, you know, dramatic change. I don't know why. I don't know what a Texas girl was thinking, going to <laughs> freezing cold Boston. Yeah, no. yeah how to dress. I went, so I knew I needed a coat while well, step one. And I went to like a Burlington coat factory because it had coat in the name. And I picked out a ski jacket. Like that's how not aware I was of what the weather is actually like there. So I show up in like a turquoise ski jacket and everyone's got like a, a nice wool trench and they know what they're doing. Um, so I was a fish out of water, but um, that decision really allowed me to just have a completely different experiences and meet different people. And, you know, my roommates, my freshman year were just like, I mean, all over the place. Yeah. So to have these new experiences of like, how do I deal with these humans? How do I um, adapt to this new environment was really, uh, and, and I'm sure everybody goes through that to any extent in college, but um, just the disparity between like small town, country, Texas, you know, to big city Boston was was really fun. Yeah. So I want to dig into that though, because a lot of people, I feel like, like the comfort of knowing someone, right. So, you know, in the 
town I grew up in, a lot of people went to the exact same school because, well, I, I have this cohort of people. I know even if no one else likes me, these people will. And there's comfort in that. So talk a little bit about, you know, the growth that comes when we get outside of comfort. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think those moments are the moments that start to define you in business and all of the other endeavors. Because when you say, oof, I don't know what I'm doing here or how to adapt to this situation, but somehow I've got to dig deep, listen to my intuition, find an answer and figure this out. The more we have those experiences and those micro victories in whatever way, whether that's a social victory, it starts to lead into your own confidence and belief in yourself in business. So having to read the room and figure out how do I form relationships with these strangers? How do I move to a town where I know absolutely nobody and create a life for me here? And, and really, it was just kind of one step at a time, one person at a time, one conversation at a time till you find your way. And I did like cycle through different groups of friends based on, you know, where you were in the dorm or whatever program you were in. And yes. I didn't, I don't think I found my way until my junior or senior year, but, um, you know, it's really, I think in those moments in life where we are at a loss and we don't know, and we're kind of like floating in the abyss of what's to come. I think the best thing you can do is say yes to everything that you have the capacity to say yes to. So any opportunity to come to some random event, just say yes, and just yes. stretch out that hand and start shaking. I like it. So I want to take that thing, uh, that comment though, of the say yes, because now you're probably in a little bit of a different spot where it's almost like now I need to say no to things no. <laughs> because if I say yes to everything, that means I'm saying no to other things that might be more valuable. So once again, I know we're jumping in the story. So this is not chronologically ordered, but it's just a question I want to ask. So in regards to that for you, how did you go from the yes mentality, because that opens a lot of doors to all of a sudden realizing, hey, there's 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 too much commitment potentially that or too many things that I'm being offered. I need to start saying no. How did you kind of balance that? And how did you weave your way into, you know, making those types of choices? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the distinction is your capacity. And yes. so if you have a blank slate, say yes, right? And as soon as that plate starts to fill up, then we have a limited uh, amount of resources, which time, energy, whatever it is. Yeah. And so at that point, then the saying no is so incredibly important. And I do a talk with on this um, sometimes that I love because it's all about the power of saying no and why that is so important for us in order to create that space for other things in our lives. And so when it comes to saying no, um, depending on uh, that extra time I have, that discretionary time or energy, whatever it is, depending on how much I have or how little I have, my scale of yes and no changes. And when you're in those pinch moments where you've got like deadlines and you're swamped, then for me, every single thing that comes across my desk, it's either a hell yes, or it's a no. And if it's not a <laughs> hell yes, then I just have to say no. And so then how do we start to feel, feel, feel what is that hell yes? And what is that? No. And I think that goes down to your intuition, creating time and space to really listen to how does this decision feel for me if I sit with it? Because sometimes, yeah. um, you know, we, we say yes, but deep down we're like, Oh, I don't actually want to do that. So first mm -hmm. the intuition of knowing secondly, creating a space between the request and the response. So yeah. I love to have things in my back pocket where if somebody asks me to do something, some way of delaying my response so that I can actually have that time and space to go sit with it, right? Mm -hmm. so 
What are those little one-liners you can say that give you that space? So there are tons of little tools you can do in order to um, create that and sit with it. And then ultimately, if it's a no, being able to stand powerfully in your no. I think a lot of times we make our no mean something about us. Like yeah. I said, no, because I, I, or, or I said yes, because I don't want to be selfish. I don't want right. to, you know, right. We, we start to color our no with all of these things when in fact, it's just a no and that's totally okay. So yes. Be, Having whatever uh, work you need to do around what your no means for you and not adding extra stories to it and then just being able to say it flat and stand powerfully in it is such a muscle in and of itself. Yes, that, that's fire. So everyone rewind that for about the last 90 seconds and then play that back again. That, that will change your life. Uh, a business mentor of mine, Jordan, he says it all the time. He goes, uh, no, no is an answer. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be no because, right? It doesn't have to be no and this. It's like, no, 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 no can be your answer. So yeah. I do this exercise with people when I do this talk where everybody has to go around and say one thing that they're looking for right now in their life, something that they want. And every single person uh, only gets one yes to give. You get one yes. Oh, and so you have to be very discerning about what you give your yes to, which is also a, an exercise. And then you have to get very comfortable saying no. And on the flip side, hearing that no. And so you can't just shake your head. No, you have to answer no. And you just become more powerful by the end of it and standing with your no and not giving that reason. And you see in the beginning rounds, people are so tempted to go, oh no, because blah, 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 blah. You don't have to give an answer. It's just, you don't need to justify your no. Well, I think, I think that idea of if I only had one yes, and it had to be a hell yes, like Mm -hmm. that, that's powerful. I like to, I'm gonna have to start thinking about my yeses that way. Not just like, sure, I can do that. No, like, no, hell yes, I'm going to do that. Right. I'm excited about that. Totally. Because of course, people are going to constantly be asking you for things, especially as you're networking and, and out in the world, people want things from you. And so you have to be discerning on that. Yes. I mean, your email, there was a, there's a quote, I forget who said it. I'm, I'm so bad at remembering who said the quotes, but it was like, your email is a breeding ground for other people's priorities. Right. Ooh, yeah. And so you're just constantly giving, giving, giving in, in your life. And so just to say, you know what, I, if I only have one yesterday, if I can only give one thing, it's gotta be a hell yes for me. Because if we say yes, because we don't have a good enough reason to say no, then, then we were drowning. Mm-hmm. That's good. I like that. Woo. Fire. Okay. So you, you start getting into uh, something that you're passionate about and it really stems from, you know, just in learning about you, your lack of maybe having that, that go-to example, that go-to person that was a mentor for you. And so you create this idea and this uh, movement called the Lioness Project. So talk a little bit about that, what it all entailed and kind of how it came about. Yeah. So I believe that mentorship is one of the most powerful things that you can do to accelerate your growth in life. Right. And I always wanted a mentor. I was like jonesing for a mentor. I wanted this badass, powerful CEO woman that could just kind of like teach me the way. And I'll never forget. I was in Boston working at a job and I told the HR person that this was something I was yearning for. And so he set up a meeting with me and this badass CEO. And I took the train like all the way across town in the middle of a work day. And I went to the cafe and I was like, so excited to meet her and she never showed up oh and no <laughs> heartbroken i was heartbroken the mentor i'd always wanted never showed up and um i just in that moment i was like okay this there needs to be a network there needs to be resources yeah. like how, what's the um i don't know what's the program for for kids uh with the you know mentorship program like you're finding oh, like big brother big sister yeah yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Big brother, right yeah. like 
where is that for just the badass entrepreneur? Yeah. So um, I was in a I was in a program and I was starting to define like what are the tenets that I stand for in this world and what I boiled it down to was love, joy, and empowerment. And mm. if everything I do in the world is uh, is just is loving, is giving people love, is spreading joy, and is empowering others, then I know I'm on the right track. Everything I can do, if it can boil down into those principles, then I know I'm on path. So I thought, how can I be that? And, and what have I always wanted around this category? And it was that mentorship. And then if you look around and you look on Instagram, sadly, or just any of our social networks, right? Who are the women that are, are the mentors for the young girls today? You've got the Kardashians, you know, they're watching shows like The Bachelor. I mean, it's just not a good landscape, I think, for, for the bulk of young women. And so I wanted them to have these incredible mentors that are saying, you can have a seat at that table. You can be the CEO in your life. And so the Lioness Project is all about uh, helping young women step into that. And the core tenets are self-love, leadership, and sisterhood. So if we can find that uh, part of I think part of the reason sometimes we struggle at a young age or in those formidable years is we don't know where our true north is because we're so mm. guided by things outside of ourselves. Yeah. And especially now we're so distracted, my goodness, right? So having, again, that time and that space to go inward and really say, what is the right answer for me? What is my true north? So teaching those principles of meditation, of, of, you know, the, of intuition, right? So if we can find that guiding light and principle within ourselves, then we can step into a leadership position and we can bring people on that path with us. And then from that leadership position, let's galvanize the women so that as a whole sisterhood, we can, we can rise up together. Are you kind of passionate about this? I maybe, know. A little bit. <laughs> maybe a little bit, just a little bit. She's fired up folks. So, so how did you go about this then? Did you, how do I want to say it? Did you recruit, you know, CEOs, ladies that you were meeting? I mean, how did you go about this and how did you then find the girls? Or in, I mean, maybe it was a high school or a middle school or something, but how did you find the people to kind of like get started? Yeah, so um, I structured this uh, project as a, as a retreat, a one-time event retreat. Um, and I'd love to do more of it again and again. It's kind of the same principles have trickled into other areas of my life and other businesses. Yeah. Uh, but at the time it was called the Lioness Retreat. And so it was a one day event. And so I partnered with the Boys and Girls Club, which brought me you know, a slew of people. And then I found other local LA charities. Uh, Project Fly LA is an amazing charity. And they work with um, some you know, at risk and, and people that just need some, you know, foster children and things like that. So I was able to find these organizations to actually bring the girls. And then I sold tickets as well. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the biggest principles that, that allowed this event to be a success is I told everybody, I mm. mentioned it to every single person. I lived a life of just spreading the word. No yeah. matter who I was talking to, like, Phil, if you just stopped me in a bar, I'd be like, Hey, I'm really, let me tell you what I'm passionate about. And I would mm. tell story about what I'm here to create in the world. Yes. And it was so enrolling for people that everybody just said, how can I help? What can I do? And the other thing that I did is I always had three asks in my back pocket all time. Okay. I need sponsorship. I need um, gift bags and I need somebody to organize this. Right. And as soon mm. as I as soon as one person said yes to one, dink, check that one off and add another third one to the list. Right. Yeah. So 
that was just a structure of um, having enrollment conversations with people, knowing what was next on my list. And then I just spread the word. And so um, it was incredible because I was able to transfer the goal of the event into the community of the people that also were standing for that. So it wasn't about me building this thing. It was about what can this community build for this cause, which makes yeah. it so much more powerful. That's awesome. So talking about that specific um, idea of growing something that means so much to you, you know, how important is that as an entrepreneur, as someone that's starting any project or movement to, to really harness that passion for it? Mm, absolutely. I mean, it's hard. Entrepreneurship is a grind, right? I'm sure you yeah. know. So you have to be in touch with that passion. You have to revisit that passion. And you also, I think sometimes we romanticize entrepreneurship a lot. And you think, <laughs> yeah. That's going to be so fun. I'm just going to be living my passions all day, every day. Y'all, I'm here to tell you that is not always true. It is a grind. So you have to be realistic. Um, like have that foundation of passion to keep you afloat, but also be realistic so that when it is hard and it does suck, you don't go, Oh, I've lost my passion and it's over. You know, you can, you've got, you've got that as a security, but yeah, you have to, you have to be realistic. Yeah. Well, so I think there's a lot that's said there. And I think that's why what you're, what you do in regards to being a mentor is so important because a lot of people, I mean, myself included, I didn't come from an entrepreneurial background. I mean, I, I remember my parents being like, you're crazy. You're going to, you know, you, like, you don't know how much you're going to make. No. What? Why? <laughs> Why would you ever do that? Right. But it's like, I don't know. I've got to screw loose, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the end of the day, right. I mean, if you don't have someone that can kind of show you the ropes, then uh, that, that can be a lonely road, uh, you know, without having that mentor there to be able to get you through some of those tough days which is why you've got to be able to boil your passion down into an enrolling conversation because everything we do in life requires other people. Even if you're building a t-shirt company or something like you need the people to buy it, you need, you need the website, right? There's always going to be other people involved and you can either pay them to be involved or you can start to galvanize people through passion by being able to enroll the masses in whatever the greater vision and dream is. Yeah. That's good. That's good. So as the Lioness Project's happening, uh, <clears throat> there, there's an important individual that you meet in your life. And uh, there might be a memorable walk that, that happens, that, that turns into an important conversation. Yeah, yeah. So I met my husband, <laughs> uh, my now husband. Yeah. So I was actually, I was moving to Costa Rica. Okay. I was like two days later buying a one-way ticket to Costa Rica. At the time I was doing market entry strategy and brand positioning for different emerging tech companies. And so I was like, you know what? I can do this remotely. Why am I paying LA prices? (laughs) Let's go to Costa Rica. So um, that was the plan. And um, I also was just coaching fitness on the side just because I liked it. And, um, And so my husband owned an F45 in Venice. Venice Beach, California. And so he was like, Hey, come, come train at my F45. And I just wanted some options. I was like, maybe, um, it was not a job interview. Let's be very clear (laughs) guys as a job interview. Um, he wanted to go to a cafe or something. And I was like, nah, let's walk that way. I can just get some exercise in today. So we went for a walk and on that walk, I was like, Oh no, I don't think I'm going to Costa Rica. Oh no. Audible. So, um, 
yeah, I met my husband and I guess the rest is kind of history. That's wild. So in that walk, even you kind of had this feeling, huh? Yeah. You know, it was kind of, you know, when you meet somebody and it's like all the lights got turned on in the room and you're like, Oh, I've been living in a dark room. Um, uh, it was one of those. So yeah, I just knew. And, and if it wasn't him, it was somebody like him, you know, like I knew yeah. that, that there was a difference now. Mm-hmm. That's so good. Change my plans. <laughs> <laughs> See you Costa Rica. We're out. Not, <laughs> yeah. not coming, not coming. So talk a little bit about the dynamic of working with a spouse in business. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I hear being married is hard, you know, I mean, I think people are proving that, but then also adding a business in addition, does that make it easier? I would guess not. <laughs> <laughs> I would say no. Um, I think my, well, the funny thing is my parents were entrepreneurs together as well. Right. So I had a model and yeah, I had a model, but I think the most important things are clear division of uh, labor and responsibility and who's kind of the decision maker within each category so yeah. that it's not a, a democracy all the time necessarily. Yeah. And then being able to draw the boundary between work and home. And I think that is very difficult. And especially during COVID these days, I think everything is blended for everybody, but you have to be able to say, okay, now we're taking off this hat and we're putting this other one on. And I'll be honest, it wasn't, it, it's not my favorite. I, I prefer my current model of having my own business and being able to ask my husband questions and pick his brain. And, and he gets to be the hero in my business with all these great ideas, but I yeah. still get to make the decisions. Yeah, that's good. So this F45 company is important to you guys for, for many reasons. Uh, one is, you know, it's a spot that you're employed, but then you actively are owning and running. Yeah, so um, F45 came to America, I wanna say it was 2016, and they were an Australian-based fitness franchise and they just went like gangbusters in Australia. Everybody loved it. So they expanded very quickly and they came to America and they didn't really have a lot of the systems and everything worked out quite yet. Like that, like the workout, the product of itself was amazing. But in terms of building the American infrastructure, that was not quite set up yet. And so when I came in, um, they had just started putting F45s in college campuses in America as a, as a big marketing push. And so my husband was actually the one running that division vision, putting them in colleges. Yeah. And so um, the uh, CEO of the company just knew me uh, through conversations with, through, through him and, uh, and of my background. And then basically was like, Hey, we've got this new franchisee induction. Everybody that bought a studio in America this last month is coming to LA. And uh, would you be willing to give the presentation? So I was like, yeah, just send me the slides and I will do it in three days. Right. It's coming up. And they were like, we don't have any slides. <laughs> so okay. I, I was thrown straight into the fire of how do I create a curriculum to onboard these new franchisees, right? And this was, mm -hmm. a, this was a journey and an evolution over the years. Um, but so I managed the uh, F45 induction process. And then when a studio would go into a new college like USC and Stanford and Baylor, I would then go to the college campus and onboard those trainers and have them, you know, launch their studio successfully. So yeah. that was the first chapter of my time with F45. And then I became um, an athletic director there where basically, again, like I said, it had just started. Yeah. And so the challenge was how do we train thousands and thousands of trainers 
in, you know, a thousand different studios in 50 different countries? And how do we have a consistent brand experience um, and constantly upskill our trainers? And so I figured the things that we needed to do is we needed to onboard them consistently with great brand information. We needed to have a way of monitoring whether or not they're successful, some way to gauge that success. And then we need to upskill them along the way. So really my job was working on the systems in order to do that. How are we delivering the education? How are we evaluating them? And how are we improving their performance? Yeah. So you, you kind of talked about this um, offline, but it was that, you know, this role was like the perfect matchup, right? It was my marketing strategy plus my fitness. Now I have this ultimate role. Um, you know, was that the thing that really intrigued you about it? Because it was taking two of your passions and bringing them into one. Was it the company? Talk a little bit about how you decided to make that transition. Yeah, well, I wasn't going to Costa Rica, so I had, <laughs> had some time on my hands. Um, you know, I love fast growth tech startup companies. That was always my passion. There's something I love about those moments, like in the trenches. Um, yeah. Prior to that, when I was in Boston, I worked with a, an engagement marketing agency. And just those moments of like working in a basement, like here was my interview, Phil. I walked in to this basement office of this company, it was called Campus Live at the time. And somebody was flying a helicopter inside and somebody, the, the, the head of marketing had a shirt off while the head of HR was shaving his neck. And I was like, okay, <laughs> where am I? I think this is cool. <laughs> so, you know, going from that and then watching that maturation phase of a company and then getting to those points where, you know, you get that series A funding and everyone pops champagne. Like I live for those moments. Yeah. And so I think I was always chasing that um, experience of just giving it my all in the trenches and watching those, those like those huge moments of success in a company. I love that. So, um, with F45, that seemed like a very clear opportunity because it had so much brand equity in Australia and it was going to come here and make a huge splash. So I just wanted to get down and dirty with anything that they needed. So my job, when they first hired me, this was my job description. He said, I just want you to make our trainers better and make our franchisees love us. That's it. I mean, that's all you got to do. That was it. Just those two things. And so no real direction on how to get that done or what my like objectives were. It was just make them love us and make them better. So that's why I built all of the systems and things that I did. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting to me. Did you have anyone in your life that kind of taught you to be a systems person? I mean, you talked earlier about your mom having colored paper clip or clips on her board. So part of me is like, what well, maybe this is like, you know, subconsciously coming out, but talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you, you probably nailed it there. I bet it was my mother. Um, she's a very systems-based thinker. And yeah. I um, I just love systems. Everything is a system, you know? And when you can create efficiency, your life is easier, your business is better, right? So I'm always looking for what are the patterns? Uh, how do I group things? How do I distribute things in a way that's just going to make everything more efficient? Mm -hmm. So even I, I realized I love systems when I was I was a waitress in high school before the bar and um, and I would always be thinking of like, how do I take one trip from the kitchen to the table and accomplish as much as possible? Yeah. And I also worked with my brother. My brother was just like not a systems guy. So he would like <laughs> go out to the floor and fill up the water then go over here and get the check and over there to get the to-go box. And I was like, no, 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 no. You got to build the whole route strategically to maximize your effort. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I think this is something I'm really passionate about. I like that. So 
I want you to speak a little bit about that in a sense of creating a system, creating a process also has to do with somewhat creating habits, right? And a lot of people struggle to create new habits because they already have old habits that are not good. So is there, was there, are there certain things you do to help people create habits and, or um, were there things, you know, with the trainers or the franchisers that you're like, Hey, these are things we have to do. And here's why. Mm, That's a really good question. Let me mull that one over a little bit. Um, I think each person is going to adopt a habit differently. And of course there's like the 21 days and things like that. There's probably some general practices uh, in order to accomplish that. So I don't so much know about like habit forming psychology. I just know what it takes for me to get it done. And then if you're doing a program with me, however, that structure is, is going to be demanded of you within that program. So for some people, like I teach uh, Rebel Boss Business Bootcamp. And, and in that business bootcamp, one thing I, I have everybody do is they've got a, a spreadsheet and they put 25 actions down that week of 25 things they need to check off. And so on that spreadsheet, um, everything is red. You've got a column that's all red. And as you finish them, they're green. And there's something about that visual of getting all of your greens that people love. And I like the yeah. spreadsheets because everybody can kind of see what they're up to. Everybody in that program is on one spreadsheet. So that's something where if you're in the program, now you're going to do this thing. And then from there, for a lot of people, it actually became a habit because they realized that right. it worked for them. So sometimes habits are just forced upon you, maybe. <laughs> and that sometimes they need to be, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's why you have mentors. Yes, yeah. that's good. Okay, so you go from working for F45 and then you guys are married and now you guys own different uh, gyms or you know places, right? Yeah, so um, my husband and his business partner at the time, two business partners, they opened the first F45 in America, which is how they actually got looped into HQ. Um, They had a South African buddy who knew of it because he had friends in Australia. So they got on a plane and they went to Australia and they're like, wow, this is this is really kicking over here. Let's bring this to America. So um, the first studio was built in Summerlin, Las Vegas. And so um, That one was established as I was working for HQ. And then we bought a second one in Henderson. We just opened a third one during COVID at Las Vegas Arts District. We have another territory, so it'll be opening soon in Centennial Hills. And then F45 just launched a new concept, which is called FS8, which is more like Pilates, yoga, toning, and bar. And so uh, we have one of those as well. It's just not open yet. That's super exciting. So you talked earlier about capacity. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, one, I'm sure when you started with one, that seemed like that's my capacity. And then you added a second and you seem like that's capacity. And now we have, you know, five and, you know, one that's one of those is on its way. So talk about like how capacity has grown for you and what that's um, really been like to increase capacity. Yeah. Um, we're coming back to systems, Phil. Yep. <laughs> There's themes. There's yeah. themes. <laughs> right. Um, you know, the hardest part of running these businesses is finding good teams, good people. And so the biggest challenge as an entrepreneur, because you can't do it yourself, obviously it's not scalable. So how do you find the right people? How do you establish you have to get very clear on what your business actually needs to survive. What are the things that move the needle so that I can find the people that are skilled at that? And then how do we find, hire, onboard, train, and maintain again, right? Those same principles in order to run an effective team. And once you have those things in place, you start to build those systems that allow you to take more on. But if I was doing it all myself, there's just no way we'd be able to to handle this load. 
So that's an interesting point. How did you get good at delegation? Necessity. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. You know, I, so I managed our Summerlin studio for a while. I was, I was pregnant. And so I, I didn't think I was going to go jump into the workforce with this big old belly. So I was like, I'll manage the studio. And um, that was actually really, really good for us because it allowed me to see where the gaps are, where the holes are and what systems needed to be created still, even though we had had this business for so long, you know, we were constantly relying on a manager to do something and report back to us. So when I got my hands dirty in Summerlin, I really realized um, what are the things that the manager needs to be doing and what's yeah. everything else? Cause there's a million other things and everything else. How do we hand that off and who are the right type of people to do those things? So mm. from a manager standpoint, the biggest thing is you need to um, you're constantly hiring and, and training. So how can I build a system to hire better? So for example, we used to just do, you know, solo interviews all the time. We do a phone interview, then they come in, we do an in-person interview, right? And it's that one for one model, which is very hard. So then we just started doing group interviews. So if you're, if you're a viable candidate, everybody meet at this time. And then you also get to see, are they extroverted? How are they dealing with these people? And there's a strategy to it, right? You tell everybody to come at 12 and you don't start the meeting till 1215. And you see yeah. what people do. <laughs> Right. And the ones right. that are, are the type of people that would thrive in a gym setting, they're shaking everyone's hand. They're getting to know each other. Right. So you build these little systems in to make it more efficient for you in order to accomplish that, that bucket of tasks. Right. Yeah. And so then how do we build the manual for onboarding? What are the systems that we need for that? Um, and then how do we know whether or not our employees are successful and they're accomplishing their goal? And that's another huge part of entrepreneurship is what are the metrics of success? Oftentimes, we think the only metric is how much money we made at the end of the month. But yeah. Boiled down on how you're going to achieve that goal is how many phone calls did you make? How many leads came in? What's your, what is your trial to booking to show up conversion rate? Right. And so then if you're booking a bunch of people into a class and nobody's showing up, then we need to build a system around how we're communicating with those people and getting them in the door. Yep. Are there text messages that need to be sent at a certain time of day in order to close that loop and have us be more successful in that realm? Boom. Boom. I'm taking notes. I'm figuring out, I got some systems I need to, I need to implement yeah. some systems. Yeah. I think, I think I have some. So that that's a perfect segue into um, rebel bosses, right? Because now you're like, well, I've had success doing this. So now I'm going to teach other people how to do this. So talk a little bit about one, how the heck the name came up, but then two, what the mission is. Cool. So, um, with Rebel Boss, I named it Rebel Boss because when you're an entrepreneur, I feel like you're, especially in fitness as well, I feel like you're a little bit of a rebel as it is, yeah. just like bucking the system, the nine to five. And as a fitness entrepreneur, there's something to be said around like, I'm not going to sit at a desk. I am going to be on my feet. My body is my instrument, right? And so it just felt a little rebellious that you could create this, this, this other um, way of being in the world. And then boss, you know, stepping into your CEO, a lot of times fitness trainers, they, they just see themselves as a trainer and they're just training. But in order to really thrive, you have to say, I am the CEO of this business. The, the, the Calvary is not coming to save me. I have to figure this out myself. Right. So yeah. having people have that mental shift about taking radical responsibility in their business and stepping into the power of CEO is often a different experience for them in and of itself. So you're a rebel, you're bucking, you're bucking the standard and you're a boss. Yeah. Mission is, um, is all about 
helping fitness trainers thrive on their terms. I believe that fitness trainers are some of the most uh, empowering, inspiring, incredible humans. And the mission that they're up to is to change people's lives, to bring more health and happiness into the world, right? That is something we should be investing in. Yet fitness trainers are often just, you know, at the mercy of their, at their, of their clients' schedules. They're working crazy hours. They're not making enough money. They've invested so much in their education in order to, to be masters of the human body, but they don't have the business background to run an efficient and sustainable business. So what do they do? They burn out. They're un- happy and we're losing these these talented people in a necessary field. So all I want to do is help them to run successful, sustainable businesses so that they can make the money that they want so that they can have a larger impact. Absolutely. So you you had a quote um, and it was, yeah, I'm willing to invest $2,000 into a 90-minute phone call because I believe that the information that I'm going to extract from the 90 minutes is worth more than $2,000 or it'll generate me more than $2,000. Right. And I think when you get to that mindset, finally, that's when you can realize like you truly have an entrepreneurial mind and spirit, right? Because most people see that as an expense and you truly can't see that as an expense, right? It's an investment that will five X, 10 X, hundred X, who, who knows, just depends on how good the information is and how well you implement and have a system to implement. Uh, but talk a little bit about that and, you know, why that's so important, uh, not just the mentor side, but really just having the buy-in to make that commitment. I think it comes down to belief. How yeah. much do you actually believe in yourself? And if you know that you can, you can throw me into any situation and I'll find a way out of it, I'll figure it out, right? And so if you know that you have that ability to take a nugget of, of something and turn it into gold, then the ROI is there. Why wouldn't you invest X amount to get X result, yeah. right? So, you know, for the $2,000 for a 90 minute phone call, it's terrifying. I think there are two big moments in an entrepreneur's life. And it's the moment that they maybe uh, burn the boats and quit the job and jump into the business, right? Yep. And then the moment that they go, okay, I've reached a certain level of success. I'm here. I'm comfortably making three to $5,000 a month, right? I can survive. But what does it take to get to that next level? And there's often a big leap and a big investment in that moment. And so that's the moment where you go, huh, do I believe in myself enough to, to invest in this? And how am I going to ensure that I get my ROI on this? So anytime somebody invests in a Rebel Boss program, one of the first things I ask them is, you know, how much... Well, how much does the client pay you a month? How long are they staying? What's the lifetime value of your client, right? So price times retention, okay. that's the lifetime value of your client. How many clients will you need in order to recoup your investment in this purchase? Yeah. And by the time they do their math, they're like, oh, it's two clients or something, right? Right. So the question is, do you believe in yourself enough that you're going to get all this information? Can you go get two clients with this level of support, with this level of education? And it's a no brainer. Yes. That's good. I like how you kind of reverse engineer into that. So something that's interesting. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Craig Groeschel. He has a leadership podcast, but um, it, he he has a way of thinking about how to grow your business. And what he says is most people are trying to figure out how to double. Mm-hmm. And he goes, but the problem with doubling really is you probably don't have to radically change too many things. But if you wanted to go from 3 million in sales to 30 million in sales, you're going to have to do some things very differently. Right? Like, I mean, like you can't just do the same process. It's like, no, you have to make some radical change, you know, readjust things to figure it out. And so I think as I was hearing you say that, it's like, yeah, there's, there's power in that. 
Yeah. You know, sometimes we set goals that we believe are obtainable and, and I understand like you want to set a goal that you think you can reach. And I, I get that. And there's something to be said for that and having some real realistic expectations so that you're not disappointed all the time. But just like you're saying, when you 10 X that goal, you have to play a different game. You have to create different tools in order to accomplish that. So I like to play that game of, of what does it actually take for me to get that? And it's so big, it's scary, but who do I have to be to live up to that? Mm -hmm. That's good. I like it. So you, the last two comments you made have kind of led us to my final question. And it's, uh, it's like I paid you to just answer that way because it just segued so perfectly. So there's this phrase that probably about four years ago, I just became absolutely obsessed with and it's blissful dissatisfaction. And so when you think about it at the very root of it, it's exactly what you just explained. There are some people who will reach their first goal and they will plateau there because they hit the goal. Hey, if I could just do this the rest of my life, like that's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But that's just one type of person. Then on the other end of the spectrum is probably what I guess you and I are. And that is every time I hit my first goal, it's like, I I'm just on to the next one so quickly because like, well, yeah, but now what, like, I mean, what's next. So how in your life do you balance that, that, Hey, I hit a goal. Right. So I need to take like, you know, pop a bottle of champagne, right. Exciting, exciting moment, but not lose the enthusiasm for, for what's next. Oh, that's a really good question. And I think that's something so many of us could all do a little better <laughs> on. Right. Yeah. And guilty, you know, <laughs> guilty. Um, I, I think one of the biggest things is like, just like you said, popping that bottle of champagne, we got to ring the bell. And I think we forget to ring the bell about all the little things throughout our experience. And we have that, like, say, I want to make $20,000 this month. Right. And, and we don't feel satisfied until we've hit that. But what are the things that we did, the ways that we showed up differently, those incremental changes we made, those signs of success that we can actually highlight and, and ring the bell on? Because what you appreciate, appreciates. So if you got a referral this month, let's ring the bell on the fact that people trust you enough to recommend their friends. And if you start to really acknowledge that and you celebrate that, you're going to start getting more referrals. And if that's what's working, great. How do I build a system to ask for more referrals, to get those referrals, right? So we can't miss the little things of success along the way, because that's what's going to ultimately lead you to that bigger goal. So certainly keeping your eyes on the prize, thinking about what's next, but also all along the way, appreciating every bit of it. That's awesome. I like that. Appreciate what, what you appreciate. We'll appreciate That's great. That is good. Mm, love it. Well, Riley, I had no doubts that this would be a fascinating conversation. You've lived up to the hype. I appreciate the heck of uh, with you coming on the show, sharing your story and just all the different things that you've learned and uh, obviously overcoming obstacles along the way, pivoting many times uh, and you've gotten here and we'll, we'll have to do this again in about three years. I'm sure you'll have 10 stores at, or gyms at this time and probably three more companies. But hey, once again, we're just going to grow the capacity. There we go. <laughs> so, so fun. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks again. Riley shared so many great nuggets today. I would say probably my top one or two takeaways would be having systems and processes, not only for your business, but also for your life. If you're finding yourself saying, hey, I don't have enough time, I would encourage you to create a system and a process so that way you can create the time. Thanks so much for tuning in.